Welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss punctiliar practices and perfunctory resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, here today to discuss some of those fantastic practices and resources are Greg Lanier and Will Ross. Greg, Will, how are you guys? Doing fine. Yeah, doing well. Thanks for having us on. Great. And you guys are currently in Denver, right, for ETS? That is correct. All right. Are you exhausted yet? No, we have many miles to go, but it's, it's been good, actually. It's been encouraging. So. Well, good. Yeah, that's uh, that's exciting. I know that you've been able to talk already a little bit about this new project, the uh, Reader's Edition of the Septuagint, and that's exactly what we're here to talk about today. Not just the the work itself, although we definitely want to get to this, why a Reader's Edition, why the Septuagint, what's it like, but just Septuagint studies in general. It's not something we've yet to really cover in depth on this podcast, so I'm excited to have you guys on here. Uh, I want to introduce you a little bit to my audience first, though. So Greg Lanier is the Assistant Professor of New Testament and Dean of Students at Reformed Theological Seminary Orlando and Associate Pastor at River Oaks Church. Will Ross is soon to be Assistant Professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte and and we talked a little bit before this, but you guys have like eight campuses then at RTS now. We do have many. They keep multiplying. So, yeah. It seems that way, man. That's fantastic. Are we are we yet like in the Pacific Northwest? No. Uh, not there needs quite. like a Portlandia RTS. <laughs> Maybe Alberta go even further north. No, that's exciting, guys. I, I'm glad to have you here. I think uh, – I think it's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm excited to learn myself a little bit more about the Septuagint. Uh, fill me in just a little bit. Um, let's start not with your project first, but just a brief history of Septuagint, Septuagint studies. Just give us a little bit of a uh, little bit of info. We we range in this audience from those who just have a a growing interest in biblical studies, maybe uh, interested lay people to I think professors and scholars. So uh, just tell us a little bit about Septuagint studies in general. Right, so um, I, I guess I'll give some feedback on that one. Um, the first thing that you need to do when you talk about Septuagint is talk about what you're talking about, because the Septuagint can be a bit of a murky concept or can be easily misconstrued. This is actually one of the reasons that we gave our readers' edition the title Septu- Septuaginta, uh, which we can come back to if you want, but... Um, there's an important distinction that's often made in Septuagint scholarship between so-called Septuagint proper and sort of the rest. So when we talk about Septuagint proper, we're talking about the Greek Pentateuch. Um, so if you think about the letter of Aristeas and the legend of the 72 translators uh, who showed up uh, in Egypt to translate the Hebrew into Greek, they were working on the Pentateuch. And that's the you know, the first portion to be translated. Uh, we know that uh, as a historical and linguistic fact now, uh, or, or as close to as a fact as you can get. Uh, but then we distinguish that as the first translation made from basically all the rest of the Hebrew Bible. So the Septuagint is a term that's often thrown around as a catch-all for basically any Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible and the uh, deuterocanonical corpus or apocrypha, as they're often called as well. Um, so you have to think about what exactly you're talking about at any given point. But as I mentioned, we know from linguistic uh, evidence within the Greek Pentateuch that it was translated at some point in the 3rd century BCE, uh, most likely in Egypt. Uh, we don't know where in Egypt. Um, it's often positive that it was done in Alexandria, but that's not 
really as firm as many people uh, tend to assume. Uh, that was done sometime in the 3rd century, and then basically the rest followed, but we don't know what order they came in. Um, it's typical to see the Psalter, uh, perhaps Isaiah, and some of the historical books often posited as the books to follow the Greek Pentateuch, uh, but we really don't have uh, a, a very airtight timeline, so to speak. Um, almost as soon as the books began to be translated by the Jewish community in Egypt, and uh, also some of them were done in Palestine and perhaps elsewhere, there were revisional uh, efforts that started to correct, quote-unquote correct, to change, uh, to modify, to shift. Uh, and these revisions had all kinds of different characteristics. And that, and that starts right away, and often those changes are made with reference to a Hebrew exemplar. And this continues all the way through the turn of the era and into the first few centuries um, CE, where you get recensions, major recensions by Aquila, Symmachus, Theodosian, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, so that is a like 10,000, maybe 30,000 foot view of uh, the, the Septuagint, so to speak. Septuagint scholarship is a much more recent phenomenon, and I think you could probably locate uh, the beginning of it, so to speak, uh, just about 50 years ago exactly, um, the IOSCS, the International Organization for Septuagint and Cognate Studies, uh, was founded actually 50 years ago this month, I believe. And so there's actually a, a banquet that's being held uh, or some kind of reception at, at SBL in a couple of days here for that. Um, so that's, that's you know, sort of the, the, the modern-day uh, Septuagint scholarship uh, organization. That that's the most common. But it's not you know it's not that the, no one was interacting with it. I mean, interacting with the text sure. goes back to origin, goes back to Jerome, goes back before then. So uh, that's part of the fluidity of the the concept of the Septuagint uh, being a sure. bit of a misnomer. So. Sure, sure. So. When did this start for you guys? I mean, I, I'm sure it's different for both of you, but your own interest in Septuagint studies, getting into this, you've clearly acquired a pretty good understanding of, of the lay of the land so far. When did that come about? Why did that come about? Why, why did you start to care? Uh, for me, I think I, I caught the Greek bug in seminary, but at the time, this this notion of a uh, of, of a Septuagint was a bit unfamiliar. Uh, I mean, I had some some folks who were teaching me that would introduce some of the ideas behind it, but it really took off for me during my doctoral work, which actually wasn't in the area of Septuagint studies, but it was in early Christology and the Gospels in particular, but with a heavy emphasis on uh, ancient Jewish traditions uh, that you know, sort of in between the Testament, so to speak. Also, I was working particularly on the Gospel according to Luke. And he uh, most likely is interacting primarily with the Old Testament in a Greek form as opposed to a Hebrew form. And so uh, fell in love with the field then as part of a broader picture for me and is something that while it's not my sort of full time day job as a New Testament guy, it is certainly my night job, so to speak, in terms of how I you know, divide my time, what I'm what I'm interested in. And, and teach on and so forth. So that was really the beginning for me. I guess you could say it was ultimately an Old Testament in the New Testament kind of doorway, which is very common for many. 
but uh, not limited to that in terms of I like to I like to study it as itself as well, not just simply for the purposes of you know, pillaging quotations in the New Testament and studying those, although it's useful for that as well. So that was it for me. How about for you, Will? Yeah, for me, I uh, I was uh, right away uh, in a, in seminary interested in biblical studies and, and Old Testament. Uh, I really enjoyed Hebrew a lot. Um, but <clears throat> within the first year or two at seminary, I got an opportunity to work as a TA in New Testament. So I was doing a lot of Greek. And so I was kind of a tormented, you know, Old Testament guy for a while, wanting to be more involved in Hebrew, uh, but uh, learning more and more about Greek and finding myself enjoying that uh, almost as much. So um, what ended up happening is uh, almost by accident, uh, I was having a conversation with a professor and we started, he brought up, you know, the Septuagint version of Proverbs and... Uh, we got to chatting and, and ended up deciding to do an independent study the following semester. And so we did that, and I kind of did a deep dive in the field and found out that this was a great way for me to marry Greek and Hebrew full-time, so to speak. And that's ended up, that's, you know, that study was what kind of drew me to the discipline in general and led me to look into the topic uh, or topics within Septuagint Studies for doctoral work. Uh, and ultimately what led me into that. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, it's interesting to me, Will, your, your background in Old Testament, like you said, it's kind of a way for you to do kind of both. Um, because I, I think maybe anecdotally a little bit, the trend I've, I've picked up on here is guys who, uh, maybe they know Hebrew, but they just love Greek. It, it, it fits them better. They feel a little bit more um, equipped to study Greek. It, it's maybe Septuagint is a way for them to still anchor themselves in the Old Testament in their language studies without really giving Hebrew the attention it deserves. And that's the cynical way of looking at it. And we're about to talk about some really important benefits to studying the Septuagint. Um, so that's interesting to me, Well, that you came from the opposite end of the spectrum. You're, you're, you're studying yeah. the Old Testament, you love Hebrew. Um, and But at the same time, I think we need to be aware of uh, the need for Hebrew. But I, I, I'm... I'm interested in this personally. I mean, this is obviously something important to talk about on any kind of podcast that wants to talk exegesis of the Bible, but uh, Septuagint studies to me, I'm just fascinated by something you alluded to, Greg, the, the New Testament use of the Old Testament. You you said it can go beyond that. So I'd like to hear a little bit about that. What is the importance, in your guys' opinion, what, what's your importance? And I, I like to think your opinion is probably pretty sound on this, having produced um, a major work on the Septuagint the importance of the Septuagint to biblical studies in general. Sure. Yeah. And I was going to take a crack at that and then Will can fill in. There's you know, four, maybe five different ways that the Septuagint as a whole, uh, and, and sort of all the Greek traditions of, of the old Testament can, uh, can, in, can influence someone or help someone first. You know, and this is something that Will kind of alluded to. It is a field of its own. Uh, and then, you know, it's actually sort of debates within it in terms of how much do you, let the Hebrew Bible influence the way you read the Septuagint. And that is actually kind of a symptom of a deeper question of, okay, what does it mean to actually just have this as an independent field? Hmm. But as a document or a collection of documents uh, and translations and whatnot, including some of the apocryphal things that are not, all, not necessarily always translations, uh, 
it's it's a helpful field in terms of understanding the Jewish background of the period, their thought worlds, uh, religious practices, how they're interpreting uh, and interacting with the surrounding culture and the scriptures. It is one of the, the premier and earliest major translations, although there were smaller ones that were outside that before then. And so anyone interested in translation theory, practice, uh, the Septuagint is a major one and one of the earliest. And so it helps, uh, or it's a big, a big part of that field. Uh, you know, it's a major, massive repository of Koine Greek um, with influences from other areas and so on, but in general, sort of a nice representative base for studying Koine Greek, which, as you know, is shared with uh, with the New Testament as well as um, some of the early Christian writings and so on. Uh, it's a major, and this is something more in, in what Will, uh, Will does day to day, but uh, it's a major contributor to understanding the development of the Greek language, particularly the development of words, how they're used over time and so on. So as a field, it has a lot to offer uh, in understanding the language and understanding the uh, exegetical, the philosophical, the religious practices of uh, Jews in the intertestamental period. I don't know if you can comment on that. Or, or move on. Uh, yeah, I, one thing I would just add to that, <clears throat> in terms of the language of the Septuagint, is that language is a symptom of a social context. And so the Septuagint has a lot to offer, not just biblical scholars, but scholars of the Hellenistic period, Hellenistic Egypt in particular, because of the way that its language ties in with the language of that particular region of the world and that part of history. Um, so that there's a lot of research uh, that has gone on and is going on uh, to that extent as well. And so you've got this kind of, um, yeah, this Venn diagram around Septuagint. One of the circles that kind of overlaps is Hellenistic Egyptian scholarship, papyrology, epigraphy, uh, and so on, early Roman studies uh, even as well. Yeah, it'd almost be like, to use an analogy, studying the King James as a window into that era and how the language reflects its era and, and the thought world and so forth. So I don't know if that's a helpful way of describing it. Uh, another area, uh, second area would be, it is essentially, um, because all translation is is interpretation at some level, it's, a com it's sort of the earliest commentary on, we have on the Hebrew text. And so um, where, where the translators both appear to be quite faithful uh, and, and fairly wooden with respect to whatever their source text was or when they're not, those are all interesting things in terms of early Jewish and then what eventually becomes, uh, as the Christians sort of adopted in various ways, the Greek translations. It becomes an interesting window into interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, third, it provides a lot of insight into early Christianity, and, it's, and so that includes quotations and sort of Paul and how he's interacting with either the Hebrew or the Greek text that he had before him, or the book of Hebrews, or John, or what have you. Uh, no doubt you also see that in early church fathers as they are, uh, by and large, not, not exclusively, but by and large, interacting with some form of a Greek translation. Um Whenever you have uh, sometimes non-trivial divergences with respect to the, the known Hebrew text that we have today or something that we might see reflected in the Dead Sea Scrolls or something like that, those are always interesting. Uh, it could be you know, whole verses that are added or not there. It could be uh, you know, profoundly different renderings, Isaiah 9-6 being a very famous one where the Hebrew text that we have today is very 
different than what most of the Greek manuscripts have in terms of the, you know, a child to be born uh, to us and the different descriptors used there. And so all that just is interesting and it produces a lot of scholarship out of that. And then within early Christianity, um, Septuagint played a, a major role in discussions and debates about what text base or what, what, what sort of form of the Hebrew or, or of the of sort of Israel scriptures probably the best generic term for it, do, does the early church receive as authoritative? And so you have debates between, in particular, but not limited to uh, origin, and not necessarily directly, but sort of their different perspectives are part of the major debate. Origin, Jerome, and Augustine uh, taking slightly different positions on should we afford the Greek tradition in whatever form we have it, or multiple forms, should we afford that any sort of authoritative status, or should we only receive not only the books, but also the text that was uh, accepted within the, Jew the early Jewish community? And so there's a whole lot uh, that goes into those debates as well that touches not only the sort of text form question, Greek versus Hebrew, but also the books themselves. Uh, in particular, the deuterocanonical books, but also additions to canonical books and that kind of thing. Uh, and then finally, or, or fourth, it's a, uh, a great window as well into early Judaism. So not necessarily just intertestamental Judaism, but uh, first, second, third, fourth century Ju uh, Judaism as they were in part responding to, and in many, in many cases sort of doing their own translational work to what had become a, from their perspective, a Christianized Greek Old Testament text. And so uh, you have, plenty of interaction, even by rabbis, with, with Greek versions of passages and so on. And then finally, something Will and I were talking about before this conversation, uh, that we've seen at least, not only personally, but also with students, is that reading broadly in Greek, and this is hopefully relevant for your audience, and by that we mean not just reading you know, familiar passages in the New Testament, uh, you know, if you can, if you can read John three in Greek, you, you still don't really know Greek because you probably know it so well in English. Uh, but reading broadly in Greek helps you, uh, not only learn the language better and be more responsible in handling the language, but it actually helps in some respects control against what is often a tendency among early sort of early Greek students, most of whom are doing it for New Testament purposes, at least in the church world to over exegete. Uh, to learn about this cool new thing called the perfect or uh, the you know passive voice and these kinds of things. And uh, in, in sort of the early days, and I did this myself, so uh, I'm calling out my own self, to, to find that in Galatians and run with it and kind of over-exegete it uh, or, or specific words that you turn into a $5 word with immense theological significance when it may very well be a pretty normal common word. Most are normal, common words. Otherwise, they wouldn't have any means of communicating something. And so reading the Septuagint both destabilizes you because it's, it's familiar content, but it's different wording. Uh, it's in Greek, and so you're not familiar with that. Um, and if you do it, and you do it you know, consistently and so forth, you read a big chunk of it a lot, uh, you're learning that sometimes you know, gr Greek is pretty normal. It has certain rules. You don't need to over-exegete it. You don't want to under-exegete it, but you don't need to kind of go crazy. Uh, and there can be a tendency to do that because often Greek is this cool new toy that we learn in, in seminary or Bible, Bible college. And so one of the hopes for this uh, project like this is to provide another way for students to just read a lot of Greek 
which not only improves their Greek, but hopefully improves their ability to exegete uh, a text uh, for other uses. So I don't know if you have anything else to add. But... Yeah, I would just say on the last point that I think, I think one of the main things <clears throat> that biblical scholars and seminary students and pastors can learn from just regular use of the reader, just being constantly exposed to Septuagint Greek, uh, is the fact that there is no Septuagint Greek. It's just Greek, right? This is just post-classical, Hellenistic, Koine Greek, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it has influences from the Hebrew text in certain respects. You have to qualify that in many ways. Um, <clears throat> but there's some, sometimes, actually oftentimes, from my perspective, it, it, you see New Testament exegetes, pastors, or students treating the Greek Old Testament, especially when they're doing New Testament exegesis and they find a citation or an echo or allusion or what have you, and they take a word or phrase, usually a word though, and they just find it in the Septuagint and they and then they just basically turn the Septuagint into like the matrix. And they just kind of do like the biblical theology matrix and you can just go kind of go anywhere and download Kung Fu. Um, because they're attributing some sort of hermeneutical or exegetical or even theological significance to the fact that a word is shared between two passages. Prolonged exposure to Septuagint, just reading it, I think will we'll sort of de-arm that temptation uh, to mix metaphors because you recognize that <clears throat> this, these words are all over the place. There's over 600,000 words in the Septuagint, uh, 600,000 words in length, if I'm remembering that stat correctly. Um, so you, you, you start to read it and use these say, oh, this is just language, right? Um, there's not always some kind of deeper significance, so to speak, uh, to the fact that Paul uses hilasterion and hilasterion is also used in the Septuagint. I mean, sometimes there is, but not all the time. Yeah. Thank you for a, a metaphor from the matrix. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I, I hope our listeners understood what you meant when you said download Kung Fu. Yeah. And if they don't, I hope that they'll uh, repent and go watch the matrix and, and learn. Um, so let's, let's veer off on this course for just a second. I want to talk about the reader's edition. I think this is going to be um, useful. You've already outlined. I mean, those who want to get into the socio-religious context of ancient Judaism, early Christianity ought to be looking at the Septuagint. Those who just want to, to not, mangle their interpretation of the New Testament in Greek need to often and regularly read uh, the Septuagint. But let's let's veer off on that course for a second. If we're evaluating New Testament use of the Old Testament and we're looking for similar words in the Septuagint, you know you mentioned that there are going to be uh, lots of uses of those words. And so not not every use of that word in the Septuagint is necessarily going to be um, meant to be alluded to. In the New Testament, what would you say are some guidelines for saying there there is probably a strong connection or illusion here? Yeah, that's a big question. Yeah, it's a curveball. I didn't I didn't prep you for it at all, but I believe in you guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there are there are a variety of sort of criteria. Uh, you know, Richard Hayes in particular and Greg Beal um, at Westminster have have done a lot of work in Stan Porter as well, being sort of big three in on at least American soil that have attempted to kind of bring some order to the madness because it is very tempting to find a word in, in James and then go find a place where it shows up in the Septuagint. All of a sudden now you have, 
you know, this, the Song of Solomon being the grid by which you interpret James. And there have been even some dissertations that do that kind of thing and, and so on. And so it's very wise even just to be aware of that actually is probably step one, just to say, hey, let me make sure I'm not, uh, frankly, just sort of making up a connection that's probably not there. Uh, but, but also, I, I wouldn't want to say that sort of be a nihilist about it all and say there is no connection. Um, the very fact that they are often interacting with the Greek text does mean that uh, the thought world uh, expressed in, in a Greek, in sort of Greek garb, uh, was influential. I think that's that's pretty demonstrable. So, for instance, um, in Romans 8, there's the interesting passage where uh, Christ is given uh, either for sin or as a sin offering. And the translations are sort of split on that because it's simply peri hamartias. Uh, and so do you sort of woodenly translate that, or is there something more going on? Well, as a Greek, and I did this actually with my Greek students as we were going through uh, both Romans and Leviticus, um, and kind of reading them in concert with each other, uh, Greek Leviticus. And before we looked at Leviticus, they would have rendered that purely as concerning sin or something, whatever the, whatever it is they memorized for Paris. Uh, but then they read Leviticus, and I gave them uh, a slightly, uh, probably uncharitable amount of Le- Leviticus to read for a weekly assignment. But they saw Peria Martias, that phrase, show up over and over and over again. And it was a specifically kind of weird, clunky way of translating the Hebrew word for sin offering. And if nothing else, uh, it opened up this opportunity to think, okay, is that what Paul is getting at? Is he, is he using that particular phrase in a technical way to say that Jesus is the sin offering in the same way that uh, Moses intended in Hebrew and then was translated in, again, this slightly weird way uh, by the translator Leviticus? I would argue yes, although, you know, you can't necessarily prove that, but at least causes you to sort of think that way and would explain why you have that option, uh, I think, in the NASB and so on. Uh, and so in that case, you know Paul is interacting with uh, sacrificial metaphors at various points in his writings. Uh, he's very well versed both in Hebrew and the Greek side, uh, often flip-flops even in Romans between the two. Um, and so that becomes a kind of control. You know, is it plausible that Paul would have been familiar with this or any author? Uh, does he elsewhere interact with the, with the similar text, and he's often going back to the Greek Leviticus uh, in explicit ways, not just implicit ways. Does it um, does the appeal to uh, Leviticus as a source for this this particular phrasing? Does that um, does that fit with what Paul seems to be saying? Does it does the context uh, make sense of the passage in Romans? And so on. Uh, I mean, there's you know eight or nine different criteria, but that's kind of the basic idea. Uh, between, but you know, basically trying to make sure that you're just not seeing something that's not there. Uh, other times, though, especially when it's just one word and it's a uh, a word that's not. I don't know. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to say this incorrectly, but uh, it's being used in a run of the mill way in a lots of different places, and it just so happens to show up in yeah. First Peter. That's when I think you start to perhaps stretch it and say, "Yeah, that's you know that's the background of this." Well, no, it's just a word, um, and so it, it requires some some careful effort. And if nothing else, I think just being aware of that and knowing I should actually read large chunks of Greek to start making 
that make more sense uh, to me, then then that helps. I don't know what you want to add to that. But I was trying to use an example that. Yeah, well, it's a good example. Um, I think and I mean, an important an important qualification to everything you said there is that what you're saying is correct, and I think in large part is correct because very hamartias is a religious term. Right. You know, this is it's a the, it's a cultic terminology. It has theological significance to it. And for that reason, Paul has good reason to tap theologically into the into the Old Testament, um, and it would be a natural thing for him to do it uh, using the same kind of phraseology. Um, but it's not necessarily significant when we see uh, you know a verb like let's say ekporuo. Ekporuo is not terribly common in the New Testament. And so, you know, it would be tempting to maybe sort of pop back and, and see it in Exodus, Greek Exodus, and say, oh, there's lots of ekporuo in, in Greek Exodus. This must be an Exodus theme here in this New Testament passage, right? Because they use that word. Because it's ekporuo. It's like, well, no, it's actually no. So, I mean, from my perspective, uh, I mean, I think of myself as a, as a sort of maximalist theologically in terms of the ways in which uh, the New Testament authors are influenced by um, and drawing upon Old Testament theology, but I consider myself a minimalist linguistically in terms of the the degree to which we have license or or even firm grounds to say we can draw those connections and make those theological conclusions because of the language and then you know shared words and so forth and so on. And part of part of what needs to be borne in mind all the time is the fact that. Um, the Septuagint, uh, but especially the New Testament, are actually, as much as they don't feel like it when you pick up the reader's edition uh, or a New Testament reader, they're actually very small corpuses of Greek, right? They're drops in the bucket of the Greek literature of that period. Um, and the words that are in them are, to a certain extent, arbitrary. And what I mean by that is it's just language, right? It's it's, part, it's language that was used at the time period, and there's it's motivated linguistic usage in many ways, and there's lots of nuance to it, and there are motivations that are religious and theological, of course. But you have to always remember that <clears throat> language is used because it was used in a specific community at a specific point in time. And by community, I'm not talking about the Jewish community. I'm talking about the Greek world, right? So um, you, I think we just we tend to ratchet up the significance uh, because it's biblical scholarship, and we and we just love doing that. But you you know, it's part of a larger corpus of of language, and uh, that's that's important to bear in mind as well. I think. So I'm I'm hearing a, a strong case for a regular reading of this. I know that that obviously uh, is on your guys's mind, has been on your guys's mind because you've decided to compile this reader's edition. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about that, highlight some of the major features here. Just give me the story real quickly. What led to you guys undertaking this project? A, sh- a short email, ultimately. But uh, <laughs> essentially, we, we were both PhD students overseas and got, had gotten to know each other. Uh, we had both come to ETS, the, the Bible conferences, and uh, in that particular year, 2014, Hendrickson and the German Bible Society had released uh, their own, there had already been a Zondervan one, but they released their own reader's edition of the Hebrew Bible. And uh, so that kind of filled out the roster. So you had two publishers both now having a Greek New Testament reader's edition and a Hebrew Bible reader's edition, both of which we use and so forth. Um, And so I'd already kind of 
you know, caught the bug myself personally about using readers' editions, even even devotionally and so on, taking it to church, using it often to, to try to stay sharp in the languages. And uh, both of us independently get home from that, and uh, we're thinking, huh, why is there not one of these for this cool thing called Septuagint? And I think I emailed Will, and I said, you know if anyone is working on this? He said no, and we basically said, okay, why not us? And so through the next few months, um, reached out to Hendrickson, proposed the idea, and, and basically what they told us at the time, as well as the German Bible Society, is that that was an idea that they've been wanting to pursue for a long time, but no one had yet stepped forward to do it. And we now fully understand why, but, uh, it was, you know, it's been a great, so we essentially kind of, we did Genesis first as part of the proposal period to test the concept. And then we were off and running. And so, uh, here we are, but that was the, the Genesis of, not, you know, no pun intended, but that was the beginning. <laughs> of the idea. Um, no, that's great. I, um, I, I just, was reading through yesterday, uh, Logos Academic Blog did a, a spotlight on this work, especially focused on design, uh, because it really is, I mean, Hendrickson has done, it looks like a great job. Um, I'm excited to have a copy in my hands. I don't yet have that for this interview, but um, I mean, that's just, that's just beautiful. I, I think it looks, it looks good. I know that that's probably satisfying to you all, but I'm pretty sure there were times you probably wanted to throw it out a window as you were working on this. Tell us a little bit about that process. Yeah, it was a long process, obviously. It took us uh, over three years, start to finish, um, and then tack on about you know six months or so after we were done manuscript production for basically the typesetting, polishing up, uh, little tweaks and edits at the backside of the whole project. So the vast majority of the time scale of the whole project was basically just your daily grind of producing text. And uh, we had a very standardized workflow. Um, I'm going to take this opportunity to praise Greg's data management and software development skills, which were a huge part in facilitating project of this size over such a long period of time, and not only that, but over significant distance. I mean, Greg and I were only in the same physical location for about uh, six months out of the whole project. Um, So we did it all by email, databases, uh, um, Google Drive, things like that. so, so, I mean, a lot of it was just the, the commitment and the mindset of sitting down every day or almost every day and producing a chapter, two chapters, three chapters at a time, depending on how much you, time you had for the day. Yeah, and, yeah. and in short, the process was, in, this, in essence, once we got ourselves organized and how we were actually going to do this and made some initial decisions about, okay, which words are we going to footnote, which ones are we not going to footnote and put in the appendix, just sort of guiding principles to produce this thing. It basically was, we get the text provided by the German Bible Society. We take a chapter at a time, uh, do some some things to manipulate the text in terms of how we handle verse numbers, English headers, paragraphing, uh, manipulating, you know, doing poetry to make it look like poetry, that kind of thing. And then it's going through word by word <laughs> for the entire. We divide. We basically did fifty fifty. Um, and you read it, you check the frequency, you do the lexical form, you do the parsing if it's a verb, uh, you come up, you know, consult the lexicons and all that kind of stuff to come up with the correct, con- you know, contextual gloss based on your own reading of it. And then uh, we would log it, and then we would switch basically. And so I would proofread 
chapters he did. He would proofread the chapters I did. Eventually got to the point where the, you know a, a book was ready to send over to Hendrickson, and uh, then they would typeset it. And after that, basically, it was a process of fine-tuning from the PDFs. But yeah. that's kind of how the sausage was made, so to speak. Yeah, and what I think a key part of the project in terms of sticking to our production time frame uh, was the fact that as we would shuttle things off to Hendrickson, they would begin typesetting them right away, or almost right away. To, at a certain yeah. point, they started rolling. And so they were typesetting the beginning as we were tidying up and delivering the ends. Um, So that helped kind of... um, Actually, we almost got to the point where it was, once they they sort of caught up with where we were, and then essentially the last few books were, you know, they were, we would submit it and they would immediately do it and then we'd do the next one. And then so we actually kind of intersected at the end. So it worked quite well. And they, you know, they've been fantastic to work work with as well. I mean, having some experience now in other venues with other uh, formats and so forth, uh, they've just been, in terms of responsiveness and uh, quality of just working with them, basically three main individuals that we worked with on the actual production was just uh, outstanding. So it wouldn't have been possible without, it would be three years from now if it were, yeah. frankly, just kind of a normal publication process. Yeah. yeah they, they, were, were, they were on it from the beginning absolutely. and uh, very hands-on. So, and I mean, get, you know, getting, getting email responses 30 seconds later sometimes uh, is just quite unreal. So they, they deserve a lot of credit as well. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing in pretty much any industry, I think. So right. um, that's, uh, that's uh, something to be praised. So a reader who's convinced that they've been studying their Greek New Testament, they do not want to over-exegete. Um, they want to rightly divide the word of truth. We take that seriously. Um, they also want to better understand the, the thought world of the authors of the Greek New Testament. They've they're sold. They're going to pick this up. They're going to it's going to be in two volumes. They got a couple cover options, and they're going to open it up. And on on any given page, they're going to see what they're going to see the main text. They're going to see it's uh, our base text was drawn from Rolf's Hanhart. Uh, it's a critical, semi-critical text. Uh, that was produced back in the 1930s, revised in 06, I think, or 03. Um, so that's our base text. They're going to see that text taking up usually two-thirds, sometimes less, of the page. Uh, within that text, you have footnotes on the less common words that were on our less common word list, uh, keyed to numbered footnotes at the bottom uh, with the lexical form, parsing as if it's a verb, uh, sometimes other information like uh, with labels, uh, Hebrew loan words or transliterations, and then one, two, sometimes three glosses. Um, and yeah. then the numbering restarts uh, for each page. So you have um, you know, only one number per page that you need to trace down. And then also English headers uh, that help you kind of navigate. So I always find that helpful. Uh, yeah. Reading, so. Yeah, and this is a pretty standard setup in, in reader's editions, but I just want to make sure that those who are a little less aware, maybe they don't even use a reader's Greek New Testament. They're just using some other kind of aid, um, or they've just got it locked down, and they're just going to crush it with this Septuagint. Um, w- wanting to make sure they kind of know know what they're going to see here. Um, I, I'm I'm excited for this to catch on. It seems like you know, in, in a lot of a lot of our audience has already looked into this, and I'm excited that we've been able to to talk about it and work with Hendrickson just to make sure that those who are on the fence, not really sure why this would pertain to them. Um, that they they understand the importance here. It's obviously something you guys have sunk a great deal of time into, um, and I can just tell from the way you're talking about it. Not just because you saw 
a gap in the market, but because you really genuinely think this is worth study for those who take scripture seriously. So I appreciate you guys taking the time. I know you've probably got a little bit of conference fatigue, um, and we had a couple of technical issues getting this thing set up. Um, but man, thank you guys so much for the time. I appreciate it, and I wish you well and the rest of your time in Denver. Yeah, thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, keep up the good work. Mm-hmm.